You're listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. On this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast, we sit down with Arun Mattel. Arun has over 20 years of investment, operations, and turnaround experience. He has invested over $500 million of capital during his career in specialty finance companies, community banks, fintech, and other special situations. He and his partners founded MBM Capital with one mission, create a new profitable pathway for founders whose companies are orphaned by traditional VCs. We talk about the issues with the Silicon Valley model of growth at all costs. What key advice can you give people out there that one day want to raise their own fund? How do you analyze different value drivers of a company? And how do you go about thinking about structuring a deal, both price and terms? This and much more in this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast. Now let's begin. Enjoy. Welcome to the Silicon Valley Podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. Arun, I'm super excited for today's episode. Now, we've had a couple calls before this. I know your background, but for our audience out there, can you give us a brief introduction of your career up until this point? Sure. Well, uh, first off, thank you for having me. This is, uh, this is a lot of fun. So I started off my career in the late 90s. I was a web developer for a number of years, co-founded a company while I was in grad school, and promptly failed like within 18 months. And on the back of that, I ended up in Japan. So I spent six years in Japan as part of private equity turnaround of a Japanese bank. It was fascinating, did a little bit of everything. I started off in operations, I was in technology, and then ultimately I found myself on the finance side and kind of at the, at the tail end of that landed in New York, was investing in specialty finance companies. And so that's really how I got my start in finance. And that's really how I got my start in fintech. You know, so many of these companies that we're looking at are lenders. And we were looking at lenders and, and these kind of niche lenders 20 years ago, but they were just specialty finance companies back then. From there, I joined another investment firm. Uh, we were investing in banks, did that for a number of years. And then really the genesis of MBM was 2014. 2015, when I joined a fintech venture fund out of New York called One Zero Capital. And that's where I met my co-founder of MBM. I was recruited to turn around a portfolio company, a data analytics company. It was a fascinating experience. I mean, really the first time that had been an operator. You know, I'd been an investor for over a decade by that point. You know, we successfully turned it around. Like it would never, ever in a million years be a unicorn. And what was interesting about the partnership you know, the, the investors in the, the, the cap table was that everyone recognized it and said, well, let's just run it for cash flow, which is really not how most VC firms think. And it really kind of uh, got us thinking, you know, me and my partner, that there are probably other companies that, that kind of have this story behind them. So that was 2015, 2016. You know, I kind of scroll forward. I, I kind of ended my formal days as an employee in 2018. And I said, that's it. I'm going to go off on my own. So I was an investor. I invested in a company called LedgerX. Talk about that. Uh, that was a great outcome to FTX. I was an advisor at Klarna. I was helping them uh, launch their Buy Now Pay Later product in the US. So, you know, saw that growth trajectory, you know, 2019, 2020. And then we started MBM in 2021. Okay. So MBM, what does that stand for? And in this journey, bank, 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 was there anything in between there, any side projects or anything that you worked on? Sure. Sure. So MBM is our last names. So no, no, nothing fancy there. We really got to the point where we had 15 names on the board. 
and you know, we, we just couldn't pick. We were like, we, we just got to get started. <laughs> right? so, so that's MBM. You know, in terms of the journey, you know, bank, 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 or especially finance, I did spend three years in the public markets. So with, uh, I was very much a junior partner, ended up taking over a small cap public REIT. We owned a railroad. It was a crazy story. <laughs> And, uh, you know, I did everything like the proxy fights. I was, you know, I was sourcing deals. We were investing in real estate. So we're, we're buying land underneath wind farms and solar farms and, and leasing them back to the projects. And so I, I probably spoke to 300 different projects. I was going around the country talking to farmers and, you know, I was a land man. If, you know, like in the, the oil days, right, people run around and try to get uh, concessions to drill. I was doing the same thing, but trying to buy land. Or, uh, for this read. Oh, that's crazy. And in all these things that you're working on, where did you learn the most or that? I mean, it sounds like you, you dabbled in everything, but what would you say contributed the most to what you're working on now? So the experience at the REIT was really interesting because it was a very small organization. There were only two of us. And so when the organization that small, you do everything and you're also in the weeds, right? Like you're signing NDAs, but you're actually negotiating them, which, which is easy, but you're also negotiating and, and doing the custody and you're, you're figuring out like, you know, the various law firms and the opinions. And then, you, you know, you have to deal with 2,500 shareholders and like getting the dividend payments out. Then we had a proxy fight. We had a huge litigation, you know, so I was like looking through boxes of records. I mean, literally it filled this room records from 1967, <laughs> Right? Like this railroad was built in the 1890s by Jay Gould. And like, you know, it was like part of that era. I mean, it was, it was fascinating. <laughs> I, like, I, <laughs> I, was, I was hoping you're going on some story there. <laughs> I mean, so, so the, I'll tell you the story, the reason why this was interesting. So like, it's kind of like how my mind thinks or how, how we, we like to look at the world. So this little company went public in 1967. It was the first REIT in history to go public first or second REIT. And they owned this railroad, you know, in Pennsylvania and Ohio or whatever. And they're like, hey, we, we have a REIT, so we should buy more real estate. So the first deal that this company tried to do was, uh, I think it was an apartment building in New Jersey. And it ended up, they, they didn't do the deal because there was like some mafia link. <laughs> they were like worried about like the provenance or whatever. So the board got spooked. They're like, we can't do any more deals. <laughs> we're we're going to get screwed. And so they did absolutely nothing for the next 50 years. This company was in the public markets, owned a railroad, and did absolutely nothing. It was nuts. So we, we took it over. It was Pittsburgh and West Virginia Railroad. You know, once again, very much a junior partner there. You know, turned it to Power Reads. You know, I was there for three, four years. We had a litigation in Norfolk Southern who, who operated the railroad. And uh, that, it, was, it was formative, right? Like, I was deposed several times. Like, I mean, it was just kind of like one of those things. Like, you go through that, and you're like, okay, now I've seen every spectrum of business, right? Like, <laughs> I've been on both sides. Oh, that's awesome. Okay. So that leads into kind of today with your own fund. First off, I guess, maybe for our audience, kind of tell us what the investment thesis is. But I'm really curious about getting all the information on raising a fund. We've had countless entrepreneurs on the show. We haven't really dived into raising a fund, which is for a lot of, I guess, Silicon Valley, it's kind of that life cycle. You have a startup, you have a successful exit. You decide, I'm not going to do a second company. It's too hard, but I won't admit that to anyone. I'm going to be a venture capitalist. But we've never really talked about, we had venture capitalists on the show of, you know, I have this fund, this is why I invest, but we've never really talked about that. Hey, 
you're going out to raise a fund. What's that journey look like? So please talk about your fund and then let's go into that journey about what gets that limited partner that that LP's attention to invest in a fund, how you know, the thesis, everything. Let's really dive down there. So I'll start with zero to one is really hard. And so I'll admit it. <laughs> I think it's very hard to start a company and you know get it to the first million, get it to the first 10 million. So we we see folks that can do that. And it's I mean, these guys are like gladiators, right? <laughs> like they're they're in the arena. So it's it's very impressive. You know, in terms of the fund, you know, starting in 2014, 2015, as I, as I mentioned, you know, we were, you know, I met Lauren Bonner, my partner, and we had a portfolio of companies within one zero. Some were doing really well, some were not. But the companies that were, you know, kind of not doing well, it wasn't like there wasn't something there, right? Like there was a real product, they had real revenue, real customers, passionate teams, right? Like sometimes like good management, sometimes not, right? So that, that's kind of challenging. But they were real businesses. They were just small businesses, right? They weren't venture backable. You know, maybe they raised a couple rounds, but they're not going to raise that next round, right? Or maybe they've raised a couple rounds and, you know, they're just kind of stagnating. They could raise another round, but economically, it doesn't make sense for the owners of the company, right? The employees, the original investors. And do they really want to do that, right? Like, do they, is, is that kind of the path or journey that these guys want to take? If they think, hey, this the business we might sell for $50 million. And so, you know, we, we started working on that at, at one zero, you know, we left, I left and we developed a little bit of reputation, you know, just among our network, started seeing more founders come to us and saying, Hey, look, kind of stuck, you know, I'm weighing different options, you know, I'm not quite ready to sell the aqua hire is not really compelling today. You know, maybe it will be like, I, I still have a chip on my shoulder. Like I still want to win. And but I don't think that win is going to come by raising another $25 million. So like, what do I do? And so, you know, we saw a bunch of deals. We were talking to a lot of founders and the first couple, you know, we were giving advice, you know, we, we tried to invest in a few, we did invest in one. It was like, yeah, this is a one-off thing, right? Like this, this isn't like systematic, right? That, that was kind of our thought. And then as we start, started seeing more and more of these, we're like, well, wait a minute. Like, there's something big here. And, you know, and, and so we started talking to founders and we're like, Hey, this is, here's our thesis. Our thesis is we will back companies that have been venture backed for the most part that can no longer raise venture capital, but still have a journey ahead of them before an ultimate exit. And, you know, here's how we're thinking about it. You know, it's private equity style because, you know, it's not really venture backable. It's not going to be a unicorn. We're not, Know, coming in at these you know higher valuations, so we're going to value these companies as they are today, not as they may be, and we'll work with the companies, right? And that that's kind of what we want to do, and and we we think there's like a real idea here, and so we tested it among founders, you know, funds, banks, and folks are like, you're, you're crazy, like you know, this is 2020, you know, early 21, everything's going up and to the right. You guys should start another fintech venture fund, like you know, Series C, lots of money. And we're like, uh, you know, I, I just, I don't know if we can do that. Like, I, you know, I, I come from a credit background, you know, I mentioned the Japanese bank. And so like from a valuation standpoint, I was like, uh, like the, the cash flows don't seem to match. It, like, I just don't see how I can invest. And so we decided to, to go for it in 21. And so we launched MBM. We had a lot of positive feedback from the founder venture ecosystem. And 21 was a tough year. From a fundraising standpoint, everything was going up and to the right. So it was really the year of raising a new venture fund, what we were doing. 
but we had a lot of backers along the way. We, we, you know, one of our early backers did our strategy in a, in a smaller sense in the eighties with Tom Perkins and, and like some of the, the early, you know, kind of venture names and did a phenomenal job, right? Like just amazing turnarounds. Not all of these are turnarounds, but just, you know, kind of operational improvements got them onto the right path, big exits. And so we knew we had something in 21 talking about the journey, but 21 was just talking to a lot of investors. And really, some of it was you get feedback, right? You're like, hey, this is, this is how we think about it. We're like, oh, I hadn't, hadn't thought about that idea. That's, that's interesting. We were introduced to a lot of people through meeting these investors. Like A lot of investors didn't invest, but even if they didn't invest, you know, many of them would say, look, we can't do it for XYZ. Like, we only do venture. We only do late stage. Or, you know, we only do this. We can't really bucket you into our program, but go talk to this guy. He's great. He's going to get what you're doing. And you know, you'll have a great conversation. And so for us, fundraising has been challenging. Like my, my buddy likes to say, fundraising has fun in it, but it's not fun. I think that's cliche. It definitely is a grind. Like, no, you know, make no bones about it. But I think we've met some amazing folks. We've got an amazing set of LPs at this point. And, you know, even the ones that didn't invest have been pretty supportive or made introductions, shown us deals. It's been a, a good journey. With that, I mean, you'll hear these startup founders that will have two, 300 meetings before maybe getting a check written. How typical is that for when you're out there raising a fund to have a couple hundred meetings? Is this very similar to startups or is it completely different? Very similar. We, we've probably spoken to over 500 folks at this point. You know, I think it, it also depends on what your strategy is. AI seems to be very hot. Chat GPT. I, I know you, you spent a lot of time in that space. It kind of feels like if you're a second time founder and you're like, I got, you know, open AI, chat GPT adjacent business. Maybe it's like three meetings and you're funded. Like maybe it's no meetings and you just put up a website and, and the term sheets kind of flow in. But, you know, if you're doing something really off the wall, like if we were just yet another fintech venture fund, you know, maybe the journey would have been a little bit different. Right. Like we come from that world. We, we have the bona fides. What we were doing is somewhat new. Like there aren't, there aren't a lot of guys that are doing what we're doing. And so when you talk to someone about something that's new and they haven't heard about it, they haven't seen like other funds, it's not too dissimilar from a company that's trying to disrupt something. Like it's not immediately evident. Well, how do you get their attention then? So, like everyone wants to see the new thing, right? It doesn't matter if you're a VC fund, PE fund investor that's allocating to these funds. The new thing is just interesting. The, the question is really like, what do you do with it afterwards? Like what happens in that engagement? Like, oh, wow, this is like really cool, but I can't do it because, you know, this is my box, right? Like I only invest in this box. And it's like, well, I know we don't fit in that box, but we're doing some really cool things. Well, then how do you come up with your, with your investment thesis to talk to them about their investment thesis and make sure everything matches up? Or are you taking their feedback and pivoting, changing? No, no pivots. You know, we really believe in what we're doing. And, you know, I think it's a structural element of VC. If you look at the power law, a good VC fund, they're going to get their returns from like one or two, you know, maybe three portfolio companies in a, in a particular fund, right? And so the question is like, what happens to all those other companies that have been funded? And we're talking about tens of thousands of companies. Like it's not, you know, it's, it's not like, hey, there's like just a handful. I mean, it's like a big number of businesses, small businesses, medium-sized businesses that all of a sudden find themselves without access to capital. I guess maybe my question wasn't so much for your fund, but for 
other first time fundraisers when they're having conversations, like how do they come up with their investment thesis in a way that they know that or have high conviction that they will be able to raise the capital needed to go out and do what they want? Because sure. you'll meet these these people that are raising funds and they've been at it for two years, yeah. three years. And you're like, hey, isn't it time to, you know, do something else? So it's interesting you you pose the question that way because it, it sounds very much like an investment banking question, right? So, and, and I don't, I don't mean that pejoratively. Like I've, I've lived that world as well. Arun, if that's, <laughs> if that's a subtle plug, when I'm not the host of the Silicon Valley podcast, I'm an investment banker, mergers, acquisition, growth capital. Please connect with me on the Silicon Valley podcast. All right. Arun. Absolutely. He's the best. <laughs> that, that quotation is going on the website. Right. Uh, no, I mean, so, so the, the, the point that I'm making there is like, you have to have conviction in what you're doing, right? If you think about the capital markets, one way to think about it is like, well, where's the money? And let me go build a product that will absorb money. And that will generally generate poor returns for the people that are investing. That might be good for the manager, but to go out there and say, well, I think I can raise a ton of money over here. Let me go do it. And you don't really have conviction or like a thesis on the value generation. I think that's a recipe for disaster. And for both sides, really, right? Like the investors are not going to do well. You know, maybe the manager will have some management fees, but you know, for a first time fund manager, which is kind of what, what you're describing, really like you have to have that portfolio perform and kind of chasing the herd is not going to inevitably it's going to be a disaster, at least in my experience. So I think for us, like I said, we think we're unique capital in the ecosystem. And, you know, the more that we've spoken to investors, you know, it is a relationship game, right? Like you speak to someone for the first time, whether it's a, you know, an intro or, you know, your, your friend is like, Hey, like I met this guy at a party, whatever the case may be. I mean, we also have a placement agent, right. That, that's helping us talk to, to institutions. Dive the, into that a little bit more. Cause I'm guessing our, our listeners probably don't know what that is. Oh, What's sure. a placement agent? So a placement agent is essentially an investment banker, right? So they're FINRA registered broker dealer. They hang their license on a broker dealer. So this, this is definitely a licensed activity, right? If you're, you know, for your audience, if a friend is saying, hey, I can make some intros and give me some, you know, some carry, you know, percentage, that's generally not kosher. We, we've <laughs> definitely had those horror stories on this show of startups going, yeah, I met this one person, an advisor who said if I gave him 5,000, they'd introduce me to all these angel investors and zero intros came or yep. the famous, you know, the investors didn't know what they were getting into. And then the deal goes south and they literally, I had a call about a month ago with someone that helped a company raise capital. When the deal went south, they went after this person that made the intros. And oh, wow. the person was like, I just connected everyone to yeah. be nice. Like, what are you, what? <laughs> well, you're not an unregistered finder and they gave you money, didn't they? Well, I, they were just being nice about the intro. I was like, yeah, so no, no, it's it's a dangerous world. I mean, I think you know the the, the placement agent that we got specifically is, the, the, and the reason why we hired him is that we started our fundraising as most funds do. It's your kind of immediate network, right? So it's like friends and family, one circle beyond that. But for what we wanted to do, we really needed to tap into the institutional markets, and you can cold call and and like that does work, but it just takes a lot longer. And so we hired a guy. We love him. I, he's, he's been great. And he has existing relationships. And so he's been helping us navigate. You know, this group is just not going to do it because X, Y, Z. So you know, don't waste your time. These guys are definitely in or they've run out of budget. And, and so it actually is like over my career, I've hired a lot of investment banks you know, for various engagements. And 
used properly. Like, I, I'm not going to say that, like, it's not like a universal plug, but like, you know, for the right engagement and the, the structure, it makes a lot of sense. And so, so anyway, so, so we hired a placement agent and really we've barbelled our fundraising. So we, we have high net worth and family offices, which is really, you know, me and my partner are, are speaking to folks and, and kind of, you know, having those conversations and, and bringing them along. And then we have our placement agent who's really helping us with, with some of the larger institutions. And then the placement agent making the introductions, warming them up, connecting everyone, then you have to go and close the deal. We have to close the deal. I mean, the placement agent is not going to close the deal for you. Just like if you are trying to sell a business, you know, banker's not going to be able to close the deal. Like ultimately, you know, management team is going to have to get up there, you know, tell the buyer like why they should buy the business, like what's, what's valuable. In our case, the firm that we hired, they are helpful in the process. Right. Like there are a lot of social dynamics that go around. You're speaking to a, a team of four or five investors at a single organization. What do they care about? Like what, what have they done historically? Like that context and just kind of support is incredibly valuable, especially if you're getting off the ground, right? You're getting started. So your fund's not the typical, you know, VC where we get three or one, you know, go to the moon, all the rest fail. It's not the private equity where everyone's got to succeed or, or they get dinged. How, how do you go about? Like, what are the metrics you're looking for? And kind of what are the metrics that I guess a traditional kind of VC fund would look for and that private equity fund would look for? And how are they different or similar? Sure. A lot of questions there. So (laughs) it's okay. I'll try to remember all of them. Pick the one you want. And Uh, by the time you're done with it, the audience will forgot what I asked. Yeah. No, no, no. These are good questions. So, you know, first of all, like in in terms of portfolio construction, we're definitely not VC. So that is kind of one in 10, you know, one in 20. That's a, a different model. We're very much closer to private equity. And so from, from our underwriting, we look at companies, we take a credit lens to investing. So we think about downside. We're, we're building a portfolio that will very much look like private equity. I think eight out of 10, nine out of 10 will be successes. And then, and then we'll probably have one or two that something went wrong along the journey. Like a lot of things can go wrong between the time you invest and the time that you exit. But it will certainly look more like private equity. Do I expect a company in the portfolio to do a thousand X? Probably not. Right? We are not, you know, at least at MBM as a PE firm, we are not looking to invest and build unicorns. You know, those companies are capital intensive. They take a lot of magic and luck. Like we've seen them. You know, we've been at part, you know, of two or three unicorns at this point. Like it is really hard. And takes a lot of capital. And so our approach is really we invest in, in companies that they have revenue, they have product market fit, and the companies are generally a little too small to intrigue a strategic buyer, but they are in the path of consolidation. You could see this a company that we would like grow slowly, certainly not you know growth at all costs, but grow into a size that has some scale. And at that point, you could see an exit to a strategic. And it really is a private equity style exit. Well, then I guess with that, what are the things you're looking for as the value drivers for that company? Is it EBITDA focus then? Is it because you mentioned it's not growth. So kind of what are those things you're really looking for in that company? Or is it just the, hey, do we already know the, where the exit could be? Let's match those up. So, so it definitely is growth. It's just not growth at all costs. So it's, you know, how do you grow sustainably? I think like what we see with a lot of venture-backed companies is, you know, there's this concept of blitzscaling that's really taken over. I forget when the book came out you know, 10 years ago, eight years ago, 
And there's this idea that you're going to invest aggressively. And wh- what that investment is doing is really pulling forward growth, right? So like pre-blitz scaling, and for most companies, you'd grow like within your means, right? You've raised some capital, but maybe you'd grow over three years into $20 million of revenue. Now folks are trying to get there from three to 20. They're trying to do that in 12 months, right? Or maybe it takes four years. And so you're, you're really investing aggressively, which means that you're burning capital, right? You, you have you know, kind of negative EBITDA and you're pulling forward that growth. Now, for some companies, that makes sense, right? Some industries, you might say like, look, if we don't get these customers now, our competitor will and we'll never get them again. And the industry is too small and it's going to be a winner take all. Not every business is in a winner take all situation, right? And so, you know, we, we just spoke to a, a company two weeks ago. I was talking to the founder. I was like, your business plan calls for 100% year over year growth for the next three years, which means that you need tens of millions of dollars. What if you grew 30% a year for the next five years, right? And, you know, you, you would almost get to the same level. Like, what's the market dynamics? And, you know, if you told me, couldn't do that because, you know, our competitors will steal all our customers. We'll never be able to get them. The switching costs are too high. Like, okay. I was like, yeah, no, we could do that. But I didn't even realize that was an option because <laughs> like, as venture investors have invested at such a high level, they need that growth and the amount of capital that's being burned, you know, given that's what they need means that they need that growth to raise that next round of capital. And we're like, well, you know, what if we put a check in and we grew at 30%, like we would never need to raise again. So you just focus on execution, right? Like as opposed to like constantly raising. And you just get there in five years and not two years, but you're more likely to get there. And that's kind of like from our perspective, when we're looking at companies, we, you know, we want to see that they can grow, but they can grow sustainably, right? And so free cash flow, EBITDA, you know, we're looking at not just gross margins, but CAC adjusted gross margins. So CAC adjusted gross margins for some of these companies so are negative. Go into detail with that. Customer acquisition costs. So, you know, companies that have high gross margins, but their acquisition costs are through the roof. Like, is that sustainable? Like, you know, I don't know. Like, sometimes they are, you know, sometimes it's like, yeah, we'll make it up in year five. Well, that's a bet that we won't take. Other guys will take it. You know, that's like a financial bet. But, you know, we want to see a business model that, that kind of makes sense today, that has growth, and where we can say we could reasonably grow this over three to five years. And then exit at multiples at that point that are private equity multiples, right? So we're not going into the public markets at 40 times revenue. You know, this is going to be 10 times EBITDA, 12 times EBITDA, right? And, and does that math work for the amount of money that we are investing and what that probable exit looks like? I just like the fact that they're like, wait, that's even a possibility? <laughs> I was like, I didn't realize that was a possibility. I was like, and it was, it was stunning to me. And, and, you know, this is a company that has, like, just putting it in context, seasoned board, really solid folks, guys that I respect. And he's surrounded himself with a smart team, has sold a prior company, like, has had an, and just like that mentality that you've got to always blitz scale. You know, not every company needs to blitz scale. Some companies that have blitz scaled no longer can continue to blitz scale. Right. And so that, that's kind of where we come in. We're looking at these businesses. They have good product and a good roadmap for where the product's going. And they have real customers that are paying real dollars 
and for the product. And that should be a business that even though venture funds may no longer say, hey, I want to support it for the next two or three years and additional rounds of capital, it still should be a business that gets funded and maybe it moves from venture to private equity. And that's where we step in. Where do you see family offices playing in this space? You know, so from our perspective, we see a lot of family offices that have invested in these companies along their journey. The cap tables are generally fairly complex. And, you know, some family offices, if it's a business they know, if it's adjacent to, you know, a business that they own, a larger business, they'll continue to fund these companies or, or they'll, you know, be the, uh, the acquirer. So that's kind of where we see family offices. I mean, we, we have a, a number of family offices that are investors in, in the fund. You know, I think they like what we're doing, which is really, you know, thinking about fundamentals and kind of value investing. It's not for everyone. And then how are you looking at these companies or actually maybe not yourself, but just let's go, not the entrepreneur side of the table, but the other side of the table. How are the, the investors looking at these companies in both price and terms can you give us some insight on that side? So, you know, every situation is a little bit different. So I'll just kind of caveat with that. There isn't a one size fits all. You know, we are in the last year, we've been speaking to a lot of venture funds, especially seed and series A funds, but, you know, just really across the board. And I think what we're seeing is for the funds that can't either invest in the company, right? So it might be a venture fund sees a company that's not in their portfolio and they're like, I love the founder, I love the idea, but we just can't invest. And, you know, here's a set of reasons. They might look at that company and say, look, I don't really think it's a venture deal anymore, right? It may have been. And so we're starting to see deal flow and, and, and sharing ideas that way. For the funds that are in the portfolio company, right? They're on the, on the cap table. I think there's kind of like a multiple stages of grief or whatever the, the steps are, you know, that is like the nine steps or the three steps. And I think by the time we're speaking, to a company or a venture fund, they realize they got to do something. Folks have come to grips with like reality, right? Like this is not maybe the company's tried to raise for the last 12 months. Maybe, you know, founders have gotten some bridge notes. We're seeing, you know, kind of through COVID, a lot of the venture funds have really supported their companies. And so there have been a couple of rounds of bridge notes, you know, through, through kind of 2020 and 2021. But there comes a point where it's like, this is just, we kind of hit the end of the road, right? Like on, on this path. And so a lot of venture funds that we speak to that kind of they're acknowledging that and the deals that we've we've invested in in a company in September, we're looking at a lot of companies we've gone far and a few that we haven't quite gotten there. I like I I think they're they're realistic about where things are. Now without sharing names, is it possible to kind of tell us the details or a little bit of information about a deal that you might have worked on that didn't pencil out? So there are a lot of those. You know, there was a company that we we absolutely loved. I mean, we, we spent time with the founders. They raised a ton of capital. So, you know, kind of an A, B, C round. SaaS business, great data architecture. I built a data business before. And, and so, you know, we had our tech guys look at it. I mean, it was just, you know, the, the product was ready. Marquee, you know, Fortune 100 clients on the other side, solving a real, real problem. Solving a real problem in the you know, in their space. And we got really far in kind of the deal structuring. Here's what we'll invest and here's how much we'll own and so on and so forth. And in and, and the board, right? They're kind of like, mm, okay, fine. Like, you know, we're, we're, 
we're comfortable with this, like we'll own this piece. And, and ultimately, it's, uh, it came down to the personalities that were on the other side of the table. I mean, so much of this business is about the social dynamics and the personalities. Like you can get caught up in Excel, like you can make a lot of money in Excel is kind of what my boss used to say when I was at Shinsei. But it, at the end of the day, it is, it is about the, the people who's on the other side. And, and so we couldn't get through to the team. Like you were kind of there, but we like there was just like a little bit of a dissonance. So was so that anyways. apparent the whole time of the transaction, or was it just more towards the eleventh hour? No, that that came out towards the end. Like generally, you know, it's kind of like dating. It's kind of a good analogy, right? Like uh, you know, like you could go on a first date and it's like a really bad date, and you're like, okay, I'm done. And then you're like, oh, you know, like, and and so you, you get to know a team as you go through diligence, as you're starting to think about, okay. Term sheet is one thing, but I got to translate that into like real deal terms, employment agreements, you know, things like that, right? Which, which really is, is kind of a second stage. And so you get to know someone through that process, right? You get to know the team, how they negotiate, how they handle the negotiations, right? Like, are they reasonable, not reasonable? So, so what you're telling me is the term sheet's just the start of things? Ah, yes. <laughs> You've got a big smile. Yeah, I mean, term sheet is a... Uh, I, I think it's a useful, it's a useful document. Like, I, I don't want to like underplay it, but some, some of my mentors would say you should be able to like write the terms on a napkin and kind of say like, here's the deal. Right. And whatever's on that napkin, right. Like boxes or like, here's my, you know, I'm putting an X and here's who's going to, that's like 90% of the deal. Right. And so you kind of like, okay, I got, we're generally in alignment, right? Like if you and I were trying to do something, we'd be like, yeah, we're, we're, we, we kind of got it. That other 10%, although like it doesn't matter, it kind of does. And I've been on both sides. So like I've been on the other side where like, oh, you know, like this term in my employment, agreement, like I, I, can't, I can't live with this. Like this, this is like preposterous. Like I would never do this. And so you have to like, you have to come to the middle, right? And you also have to look at the agreements in whole, right? Like it's not just one term. It's like in the context of everything. So. Yeah, long story short, that that was one that we were we were so close and um it, it just you know we, we just couldn't get there. Okay. Now let's go to the maybe leave out names as well. <laughs> the craziest deal you've ever heard of. You've had a long career. I don't know if it's a it's not like a venture or private equity deal, but so when I lived in Japan, there's like a tax regime there where they tax global income. And the US does this too. However, if I forget the exact details because it was like 20 years ago, but basically like if a, if a country taxes at like 25%, then they won't tax that income, right? So they're like at 45%, like it's, you know, if, if the U.S. tax the income at 25%, then you don't have to pay tax in Japan, so, something like that. So this group of guys, super entrepreneurial, they went to a South Pacific island and they convinced the country to basically tax at 25%. As a tax loophole, and so you know, companies could basically invest through that island to wherever else they wanted to invest in, which you know didn't you know may not have met the twenty five percent. And so they they essentially turned the country into this like little interesting fintech, and you know, and then there was tax revenue, obviously, right? Because and then and they got paid a piece of that. So like effectively, individuals became taxing authorities <laughs> through a country. That's like. I know that's it's insane, but like, but that that's like wild. That, that probably is like the craziest thing I I've ever seen in uh, in my twenty five years. Oh my god! If you could somehow get one of them on this show, 
Oh, that'd be amazing. Okay, so for wrapping up, tell our audience a little about MBM. Who would be the best companies to reach out to? How you work with them? Anything you'd like to share about it? Please share right now. Sure. So we invest in a particular sectors. So we're focused on fintech, HR tech, data, you know, SaaS, a little bit of e-commerce on the e-com enablement side. Um, you know, generally we're looking for companies with three to five million dollars of revenue. So we want to see some product in market, you know, some product market fit. You know, we're looking at companies that have $25, $30 million of revenue, but you know, at the at the the kind of the the, the bottom end, you know, three to five million dollars of revenue. And you know, these are companies that ha- should have a viable path to grow, but they don't need to grow at a hundred, you know, hundred, two hundred percent. Like we're we're very much patient, differentiated capital relative to the VC. And so part of the company, you know, part of the the diligence, right? That that social dynamic is really are folks willing to change behavior and and kind of expectation of outcome. And, and so that that's like a big part of the conversation is like, look, you know, you've been on this amazing journey, right? Zero to one, you've got to 10 million of revenue. Like that's hard. Like, and, and we're not those folks. Like we, we could not do it. So we, we respect that. But, you know, getting from 10 to 100, like in the venture journey, that's like one journey. And then we're like, hey, maybe you're going to go from 10 to 25. And that's a different journey. And so, you know, folks that are reaching out to us, they have to kind of think to themselves, like, what is it that they're looking for? And, and what are they, you know, what's their ambition? And then the last thing I would say is like, the folks that we want to back, they really have a chip on their shoulder. Like, it, this is a case of like, look, I want to win, right? Like, I want to, I want to get to, you know, an exit that's not just an aqua hire or like, you know, this thing kind of fizzled out. Like, I want to win. And honestly, like we see a lot of guys, you know, they've been in the business 10 years and they're like, I know I built something valuable. Like, you know, I've, t- I've spoken to strategics. I've spoken to like, you know, my customer, like we need like a little bit more time, you know, a little bit more growth and, and, you know, we need some help. And that's the kind of situation that we like, right? Like, you know, folks are like, we're almost there, right? Like it's, you know, we, we've gone like 80% of the way there and it's another 20%, you know, we need some capital, you know, we need some operating expertise. But we can get there. And if anyone wants to find out more about you, yourself, your fun, what's the best way to go about doing that? You know, check us out on LinkedIn. I post a lot on LinkedIn. Yeah, just, just reach out. Yeah, we're, we're, we, we talk to everyone who comes in. All right, we'll have Arun's uh, LinkedIn in the show notes. So everyone out there, please go to, well, actually any podcast you listen to in the show notes there and on our website at thesiliconvalleypodcast.com. And for audience, when I'm not the host of so award-winning podcast. I'm an investment banker focused on mergers, acquisition, growth capital, and everything that Arun was mentioned today, all those great comments about investment bankers. We normally only get good comments, so uh, please, just, <laughs> <laughs> please just focus on what he was saying. And with that, Arun, thank you for taking the time this week on the Silicon Valley Podcast. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. To access our resources, visit us at thesiliconvalleypodcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional.